Ladies and gentlemen, as you know, my podcast, The Very Best of Pete Price, is getting better and better and bigger and bigger. And only because I get proper guests like Frank McKenna, who I absolutely love downtown um, in business. Frank, first of all, thank you for joining me. Tell us what downtown's about, because it's going right across the country now. There's no stopping you. Well, we celebrate our 20th anniversary next year, would you believe? So um, we've started really in Liverpool 2003 as a, a lobbying group for the property sector. You know, we had a city council that were very um, backward looking in terms of development and regeneration. And so we were working with some of the developers who wanted to start to do stuff and invest in Liverpool. And that's where it all started, really, brought them together created this thing called Downtown Liverpool in business. And then as we've progressed, more companies have wanted to join from other sectors. So it's a very diverse range of companies that we represent now. We've got professional services, tech, media companies, retail, leisure and hospitality. So a whole gamut of companies that we represent across the country. Because once we proved that the model was successful in Liverpool, we then started to move into other places. So we've got offices in Manchester, in Preston, in Birmingham. We also operate in Lancashire and Cheshire, uh, Wolverhampton. Our latest uh, venture is into Newcastle. We're in Leeds as well. We do events in London. So nine locations. Uh, And three things we do really. So public affairs advice and lobbying, trying to influence decision makers in terms of ensuring the policies that they adopt they at least understand the impact that has on business. And obviously we try and promote business-friendly policies within local and national governments. We have 100, well, this year we've hosted 120 events across the country. And that gives our members an opportunity to network, meet each other and potentially do business. We estimate we've facilitated about £2 billion worth of deals over our 20 years, which is not an insignificant That's a lot of money. Uh, And then we have media platforms. So we have about, again, 100,000 or so followers on on the various platforms that we have. YouTube, Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn, all that sort of stuff. So that's that's basically it. Frank, if there's any businesses listening who are frustrated with the way things are going with their business, what can they do? How can you help? Do do they contact you or or what? Because there must be, especially with the cost of living right now, there must be a lot of people tearing their hair out if they've got any hair left with heating bills, just for starters. There's lots of businesses out there that are facing challenges, obviously, but some sectors struggling more than others. I mentioned hospitality. You'd be well aware of this, Pete, because you do a lot of work with those guys as well. And if you just take a hotel and you think of the energy costs, let alone the staffing costs which are going up because, of course, the living wage is going to be increased. Taxes have just been increased by the Chancellor. So there's a whole range of issues and challenges that businesses are going to be facing over the next 12, 18 months. The thing that we can do is two things that we can do. First is we can articulate those challenges in a a relatively direct way to those politicians, those decision makers who could help moving forward. So they've got to start to appreciate the impact that those decisions are having on business and particularly small businesses. And the second thing, of course, is that you join our network. You've got access to 100,000 people through our communication channels, but you'll also meet lots and lots of people you can potentially do business with as well. 
And in the end, you know, there's nothing going to save your business more than selling more of your stuff, selling more of your product. And we can help you do that. We mentioned the hospitality then. Um, there seems to be a major problem in this country. And I'll say it the way I want to say it. And you correct me or give me your take on this. We had furlough. Uh, when the pandemic was on, and it saved a lot of people's bacon, which was fantastic. I think it went on too long. That was my first problem. Secondly, young people in particular don't seem to want to work now. Now, I heard a figure of 5 million people now on benefits and assisted living, etc., etc., because they don't want to work. The hospitality industry is hard work. I was a chef, so I know. I've worked in it, uh, but it's an amazing career. What are we going to do? And that's just one sector. What's your take on it? And what are we going to do? Because I know bosses are really, really scared, especially the big chains. It's the biggest challenge that uh, businesses have. I mean, I've had three vacancies for nearly 12 months now just in, in our small business. So I know how difficult it is to recruit people. Uh, and equally, I think the hospitality sector faces almost a double whammy. So you've got those cost implications that all businesses face, of course. But then I think, you know, you've mentioned furlough, you've mentioned lockdowns. I think the other factor that people perhaps aren't talking about as much is the uncertainty that people now see within that hospitality sector. And so if you're looking to carve out a career, I, I know... If you're talking about students going in and doing a few hours work a week, that's a different thing. But where your hospitality sector is really struggling and where it needs to start to fill those vacancies quickly is in middle management and management. But everybody keeps telling them hospitality sector is a really uncertain and inconsistent place to be at the moment. So as an industry, it's not going to be able to attract the better talent because those people are looking at it thinking... That's not a secure job anymore. So that's a challenge in itself. That's a particular issue, I think, for hospitality. And it's a double-edged sword because, you know, there's somebody in Manchester who is the sort of nighttime economy um, champion, a guy called Sasha Lord, who we've done stuff with. I like Sasha a lot. But every time you hear him speaking, he's talking negatively about right. the sector. Yeah. That doesn't help if you're yeah. trying to attract talent. I think the issue that you're talking about, which is a more general issue and difficulty that the country has is those five million people who are not working um most of them actually in the 50s and that comes from a combination of illness poor health and lifestyle choice so a lot of them have gone through that two-year period of lockdown they've come out of it and thought i just don't want the hassle of work anymore and so they've taken on part-time work or they'll become freelance consultants, which gives them a lot more flexibility in terms of their work-life balance. But that doesn't help the country's economy. And ultimately, and I know people don't necessarily want to start talking about this issue again because we got sick of it for six years. We don't really want to go back and talk about it again. But we are going to have to look at our relationship with the European Union because free movement of people the inability for us to access that market, not only in terms of our trading opportunities, but also in terms of getting people who are hardworking, want to do the jobs in sectors that quite clearly Brits don't want to do. You know, remember all the nonsense, they're taking our jobs. 
well, actually, what we've learned is they were doing the jobs that we didn't want to do. Yeah. So it's not just hospitality, healthcare, old people's homes. You go into an old elderly now and see how difficult they're finding things because they just can't get the staff. So as much as people never like to admit, well, we were wrong, um, Brexit, even if you were to continue down this route, which we inevitably will, of detaching ourselves from some of the bureaucracies and some of the politics that the European Union um, and our membership of the European Union meant we had to abide by. We've thrown the baby out with the bathwater. So at some point, whether it will be this government or whether it will be the next one, but at some point, I guarantee, we will have a mature conversation with the European Union which will enable us then to start to recruit in a much more effective way than we do at the moment. Now, people are saying now, politicians are saying, what about the refugees that are here, the asylum seekers? There's an awful lot of them. Should we put them to work? What's your thoughts? Well, that's a great idea. But who's going to do the training? Do they speak our language? Do they have the same culture as we have? And this is the difficulty, you know. I think you would have a more natural um, opportunity with, Ukrainian community, for example, because they're European. But if you're coming from the Middle East, then do you understand, appreciate how the hospitality sector in the UK works? We already have an issue in terms of upskilling and training our own people. What makes us think that we can do that with a foreign cohort? You know, there's, of course, frustrations about the fact that we're importing a lot more people than we did even before Brexit, ironically. So immigration has gone up, not down. But that's asylum seekers, it's war-torn countries, it's families who, let's face it, are in crises. And I don't think many, if any of them, necessarily see their long-term future in the UK. The other thing I'd say to you is, you know, if I'm taking on a member of staff, I want them to be living in a safe, secure, stable environment. I don't want them living out of suitcases in hotels. And unfortunately, lots of our immigrants are. Ukrainian, Which is costing us a fortune. Cost on, absolutely. But, you know, Ukrainian families who we all welcomed, but people have taken them in, and now six, nine months down the line are saying, we can't cope with this anymore. Local authorities are now having to try and house them. We make the right offer for the right reasons, but don't necessarily have no. an infrastructure to see how we then react to the inevitable consequences of those good actions for good reasons. Uh, and I just think that there is such a disconnect now between central government, departments within central government, local authorities, and let's face it, within the civil service and the government itself, where it's all headline-grabbing, short-term populism, but they don't have a strategy in place to deal with some of the decisions to take. And so we may have said back in 2016, we're going to come out of the European Union. Right? 52% I think was the vote. But 52% of people didn't vote for a hard Brexit. 52% of people didn't say, we don't want anything to do with Europe. We want to have you know, big queues when we go on holiday abroad. We want to make it really difficult for people to visit this country. <laughs> So even the fact that people say to me, well, we had a referendum and the vote was this, well, it may have been, 
But there was a sensible way forward, ironically, that Theresa May outlined, and I wish we'd have gone for that deal. Um, but now we end up with a situation where, as I say, we've not sorted the immigration problem out, so people start to get frustrated. But the immigrants that we're taking in are not economic migrants who we can necessarily usefully utilise effectively and efficiently for the job vacancies that exist here. The people that are struggling, suffering, that we ought to be looking after, but our economy is shrinking because we can't import the right source of people. I'm talking to Frank McKenna. And Frank was a politician um, and certainly has got an opinion and an opinion I agree with 99% of what you always say because I find you a fascinating man. Um, We hear about there is a crisis in the cost of living and I'm going to get castigated for this by people listening. I went out into Manchester the other day. I went out into Liverpool the other day. I don't know where they're coming from because... The markets are busy, the shops are busy, the restaurants are busy, and the prices in the restaurants, which I understand they've got to put them up, the price of drinks. Am I missing something here, Frank? No, I don't think you are. I think there's still um, money in the economy. I think that um, you know during that two-year period where lots of people were, let's face it, getting 80% of the salary and only have 20, 30, or maybe 40% of the cost because they got a mortgage holiday. They weren't having the commute costs that they usually do to go in and out of work. You know, many of you couldn't go on holiday. So many savings are now being spent. I think that's one of the issues that are coming out of the economy now because people spend the money that they've got. There's still an awful lot of credits out there. So credit card debt, I think you'll see starting to go through the roof next year. And that creates its own problems long term. But I think what you miss when you live in a city such as ours, whether it be Liverpool, Manchester, Birmingham, Leeds, you know, is we see the hustle and bustle every single day. Um, but I've still got mates in Skelmersdale, which was the town I represented when I was a politician. And that's only 30 minutes away from where we're sat now. And I'd just challenge anyone who says there isn't issues and problems out there to go and visit some of the estates in Skelmersdale and see the poverty, the real struggle that people are having to make ends meet. And we're talking about people with kids, with families. We're not talking about lazy people. We're not talking necessarily about people who are unemployed. We're talking about people who are in jobs, but those jobs are often short-term, short-term, and they are struggling because the heating bills have gone absolutely through the roof. And I can tell you from my own personal experience that I consider myself to be very comfortably off. And I'm fortunate enough to have my own business, a good salary. My wife has got a successful business as well. When she and I are looking at our heating bills, I know we've got a problem. And, you know, not looking at them and going, oh, isn't that a pain? Looking at them and thinking, wow, how are we supposed to be able to afford that? Because, we, again, it's like anything else, Pete, isn't it? You have a particular lifestyle. And you earn a particular amount of cash and you spend it. But if you're on the bottom rung, you know, you've got no cuts to me. That's the problem. So the people you see in town are probably people like me in Victoria or people who are living on the Never Never. But those people who are in Scalersdale and other places and towns like it are people who've got nowhere else that they can go and take cuts from. That's the issue. 
I come from a two up and two down outside Lavi, yeah, so yeah. I, I know. My mum taught me, and I've got a few bob now because I did put the lights off in the rooms. I did watch the heating bills when I could still afford it. I still am sensible about the way I live, and I've never lived above my means. I drive a car that I can afford, and I've no, I'm no saint, but haven't we ourselves, a lot of us, got to take our own responsibility as well? But I think the more you look at middle class above, the issues are, you know, so if somebody says to me, um, your mortgage is going up £500 a month, that's not an easy kick to take, but I'll manage it. Yeah. But if I'm on minimum wage, or I'm getting universal credit to top that wage up, or I'm a pensioner who's on a basic pension and hasn't got a private pension, and my mum and dad would have fallen into that category, for example, and you hit them with a 120% increase in the energy bills, and then you hit them with a rent increase or a mortgage increase, that's difficult to manage. That's, that's not them living beyond their means. That's them being hit with a whole host of issues that ordinarily come once every 12 months, once every 18 months. And as much as you can say, well, the war in Ukraine, or even you can say to me, well, Brexit. And some people say that hasn't had an impact. I'd argue against that. Yeah, but I would. the big problem was a totally unnecessary budget that added overnight £30 billion to the national debt. And so now what we've got coming down the tracks is people who own businesses like me saying, well, we had three vacancies, but now we might make that too. Yep. And that's little old downtown. You accumulate that across the whole of the country and look at what businesses are going to do next year. Then on the one hand, the issue of not having enough people to do the jobs goes away. But the other problem we're going to start to see next yep. year, I think, is unemployment. So this whole thing of a squeeze, both at the bottom level and within the small and medium enterprises of the country, could potentially next year, I think, create some real challenges that at the moment, you're, you're right, you're saying, well, I'm going out and I'm seeing people still out and about in bars and restaurants and so on. Listen, I'm not a doomster. I'm very much glass half full. But Liz Truss and Quasi Quartang, the consequences of what they did have yet to be seen. In that short term. In that well, what, what a ridiculous six short term. Six yeah. weeks, yeah. absolutely not. Frank, let's talk about Liverpool. Can you explain to Joe Public what simply, because I still don't understand it, what is going on with these, are they inspectors or whoever <laughs> they are? Com <laughs> what are they? Yeah, commissioners. Commissioners yeah. who are getting paid exorbitant amounts yeah, of money? Yeah, lots of money, a lot of cash. Uh, I mean, So I'm what's happening? So, so commissioners were brought in a couple of years ago now because of the controversy around Joe Anderson, the mayor... Uh, the police investigation, and you know, it's it's important to point out that that investigation is ongoing. Still, nobody's being prosecuted, nobody's being found guilty of anything. So leave that to one side yep. because that that just continues to run. Uh, the commissioners come in because it was seen that it was believed that the city council uh, was not being managed properly, was in a bit of a crisis, and inevitably, you know, external. Um, forces appointed by the government were seen as a way in which we could sort things out and progress things. 
I think the problem with commissioners is that they're not, well, none of the commissioners don't think are from the city. So that's an issue in itself. You don't understand the culture and the environment of the city. How really can you sort it out? They would argue that they are just looking at the nuts and bolts of within the council. So why do they really need to understand the city? So if they've been here for two years now, I understand they're going to produce their next report in February, which is going to be far more positive than previous reports. So things are getting better. Um, but it means that your elected politicians are having to go through an extra layer of bureaucracy to get things done. That slows things down. We've already got lag in the system in Liverpool. For example, in the planning department, you've got a two and a half year delay on decisions being made over planning applications. So you've then got an extra layer of red tape to get through, then things are just going to continue to slow down. I was at an event with Steve Rotherham this morning, the Metro Mayor, the Combined Authority isn't impacted by the commissioners, but he was saying we need to see the back of it because actually it's a negative. If you say to an investor, yes. we've got commissioners in the city, yeah. they say, well, tell you what, yeah, we'll come let back. us know when yeah. they've gone and we'll come back. So it's not a good yeah. thing, but I think what they would argue, I'm trying to be sort of, diplomatic in terms of what I say to you here is that it was a necessary evil it needed to be done. Interesting you say that though about they'll come back. We've just gone through and we've talked about this before when we lost our heritage <laughs> and you said it was one of the best things in the respect that so many people went to Manchester because they couldn't cope with the bureaucracy. We got rid of that. Now we've got the other. You put it in place. We shoot ourselves in the foot at times, don't we? But again if you to look at it from an optimistic perspective in Liverpool next year, we've got the Grand National, which we always have. We've got the Open Golf Championship, which we don't always have. We've got the Eurovision, which we don't always have. And we've got the Labour Party Conference back again. Four massive events that are coming to our city region next year. And, you know, what I would argue is that we as a private sector, sometimes you've got to... Allow whatever's happening in local government and that noise to just crack on and sort itself out. We, as a business community, have got those four fantastic opportunities and everything else that goes on in our city region. Let's get hold of that. Let's take full advantage of it. And let's start to showcase Liverpool for the great city that it is. And, you know, if you've got all of those people who are going to come to the city next year for those types of events who've never been here before... They'll want to come back because it's a great city. And people do come back, and Absolutely. that's the wonderful thing. And we've got over the uh, euphoria of uh, the Eurovision. Now we've got to get on with it. And I don't think people out there realise how important that is to us financially. That's one of the biggest ever. It's as big as the national, isn't it? It's, it's massive. I didn't appreciate it, though. You know, when, when people said to me we were going to bid for the Eurovision Song Contest, in my head, it's like a weekend event. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's, it's not. not. Yeah. It's weeks and weeks and weeks. Yeah. There's finals, semi-finals, all that sort of thing. And then, of course, you've got the delegations from all of these different countries coming across, all the media from those countries coming across. So it's a huge deal. And, you know, some of the figures I've seen bandied about are massive yeah. numbers. Yeah. And so, again, you know, for that sector that has really been hit hard over the past couple of years through the pandemic and other issues, then isn't it a fantastic thing for them to be able to say, well, at least we've got that month where we can actually 
start to ensure that we've got some money in the bank. That's great. You're a staunch Evertonian, and we can never, ever ignore Everton. What is happening with Everton? What's happening with the stadium? Tell us, because you are a total fan. Yeah, I mean, as a fan, you know, it's great to see that the club are going to finally move to, to a new destination. It's been a long time coming. I think we're the last Premier League club, you know, traditional Premier League club, to build a new stadium. But as the old saying goes, you know, for, for those who wait, often it can be a bonus. And so what you've got now is Everton being able to use the most modern materials, the most modern architects, all of the technology that's available now to Everton Football Club that wouldn't have been available to, let's say, Arsenal when they built their new stadium. I went to Tottenham Hotspur recently. What an incredible place that is. And Bramley Mordor have had the pleasure of being able to have a virtual tour of the stadium is going to be, without question, the best stadium on the planet. Now, what a great advert that is for not just Everton, but for the city of Liverpool as well. So, brilliant news. I've got no doubts that it's going to be built. I know the media like to have a pop at our city and our football clubs and have tried to put question marks over whether... It's ever going to happen, Bramley Mordor. Just go and have a look and see at what stage of development it's at. Lango Raw have done a terrific job. They're ahead of schedule. So it is going to be there. It is going to be built. I think importantly now, and again, it goes back to where politics does matter, our city council have got to ensure that that acts as a catalyst to regenerate the whole of that part of North Liverpool. And that, I think, will mean us having to set up a special entity with some councillors on it, but to be able to just crack on and make decisions and get developments done, rather than go into the ether of the city council where you've got a two and a half year lag. Because what we don't want is a big, shiny new stadium surrounded by that election. We want people to be able to say, yeah, I'm going to invest in that part of Liverpool, hotels, new residential, new commercial, and let's start to see that part of the city grow. But... The other thing I think is important to mention here is how critical football is to our city's economy. And I'm not necessarily seeing this as a great thing because I don't think we should be overly reliant on the visitor economy of football and leisure and so on. But again, Liverpool haven't done as well as they were expected to do this season. And as an Evertonian, as a football fan, I could sit here and be a bit smug and say, well, okay, we're not doing great, but neither the other lot. Sadly, though, I talk to our members who are GMs of hotels, who run restaurants, who run bars. It will be a disaster for them if Liverpool don't qualify for the Champions League. So with my football supporters hat on, I can say, oh, isn't it great? But with my business hat on, it's crucially important that Liverpool do well. And similarly, that new stadium, from a business perspective, whether you're red or blue, that's great for the city as well. And across the water, we've got the Palioses with Tramir. Oh, and he wants to move. He would love to put a stadium at the waterfront. Could you imagine oh. two stadiums and the Echo Arena? I mean, I've gone goose pimply thinking <laughs> about it because it's, it's there, ready to be taken. And he's working his socks off. And I love Tramir Rovers. And I love what Mark Palios has done with the club yeah. because I think he's really, again, 
he started to transform it back into a potential powerhouse again. And we all remember the great cup nights at Tranmere. I'm old enough to remember when they used to play on a Friday night, so Everton and Liverpool supporters could go over. Yeah. I'd love to see that again if we could ever bring that back because I used to go over to uh, Prenton Park quite a bit. But I think with Mar Palios and the people he's got around him, what you've got there is somebody who actually understands and appreciates the commercial side of the business as well yeah. and recognises that moving of the stadium will actually secure the future of Tramia Rovers. And as you say, if we could get that on the walls yeah. in front. Oh, and let's wow. never And let's never forget, through the pandemic, Everton, Liverpool and Tranmere did so much for the community, so much with the food banks, so, and we could talk about that forever. So let's not forget how important this issue is. And Liverpool might hate Everton, Everton hate Liverpool, but when they get together with the food banks and the food, the, the love is still there, and then it goes back to that rivalry. Uh, I don't want to keep you much too much longer, but I've got to ask... I always say, to be a politician these days must be the worst thing on God's earth. It's like a club manager uh, of a football club. Two games and he's out. So nobody's giving anyone a chance. Without putting your, your, your politics head on, whether you love the Conservatives or Labour, whoever, how are we going to get, and it's not just our country, how are we going to get to be governed properly when in an instant the press who are now like a pack of wolves waiting for every breath and if it's not uh, our, our prime minister it's our opposition leader and it's it's in a bad state frank i've never known it to be as in as much turmoil as it's in now and, and as you rightly say pete it's it's not simply the uk you can look across Europe, you look across the ponds at the States, and you know, there's this real issue now around politicians not necessarily being connected with the people that they're trying to govern. Now, and, and it's, it's very split. So, you know, if we stick to the, the, the UK for a moment, you've always had blue and red, but there hasn't been that chasm of difference between the two sides you know black and white i always say most politics most issues whether it be business whether it be politics even mention football um most issues actually it's gray you know so nobody has an monopoly on good ideas whether you're a tory whether you're a socialist whether you're a social democrat everybody has an idea a solution for a particular problem and for me it doesn't really matter where that solution comes from as long as we get a solution but let's take the government of the day here now the conservatives so i have no doubt that rishi sunak and jeremy hunt understand and appreciate everything i've talked about in this podcast about the challenges of us getting the right immigrants in. if sunak tries to do that i heard a very well respected conservative mp saying last night on the program Radio, if he tries to do that, we'll get rid of him. Now, once you're in that situation where prime ministers, chancellors, cabinets are in hock for their parliamentary party or a chunk of their parliamentary party, you're knackered really. And, you know, I hope that we get to a stage of the next general election where we either get, you know, a substantial 
conservative majority were by its leader, and I think it still will be Rishi Sunak, to be fair, is able to say to his parliamentary group, I've got a mandate, and this is the policy that we're going to pursue. Or if it's Keir Starmer, that he's able to do likewise. And he doesn't have, you know, the Corbynites actually. So those leaders need that power. They've got to have. And again, you know, people say, oh, it's not democratic. Listen, democracy in the UK works on the basis that we elect, whether you like it or not, we elect prime ministers, don't we? We, we, you know, you'll go and see ballot box. No one says to me last time, oh, I voted for the Conservative Party or I voted for Esther McVeigh or a voter for Jacob Rees-Mogg, or a voter for Jeremy Corbyn. Well, actually, they did. A voter Corbyn, or a voter for Johnson. Yeah. Right, so it's so that's basic. So you can't then get into Parliament, and these MPs stand up and say, oh, well, I've been elected as Joe Bloggs, and I represent my people. We've got to have strong leadership. We've got to have politicians who have conviction, and we've got to have stability. And actually, we've got to get into a place again where politics is boring. And we're not talking about it every day. Because my sense now is that people are fed up with politics. And it's that constant change and churn of personalities. And what's the policy today? And, but if you're not doing it for the right reasons, you know, if Sunak is following an agenda that he doesn't actually believe in, then ultimately, it's not going to work. And so, you know, for me... He's got to have, at some point, a mandate, a confidence to be able to go forward with the policies he believes in. Hopefully that will come sooner rather than later. Or we get a change of government where we're going to see a change of attitude and we can get a bit more stability. But you're right in what you say, Pete. It's the same across the whole of Europe. Italy have just elected a far-right president or prime minister. You've got Trump saying that he's going for re-election again in a couple of years' time, despite the fact that his party's just taken a bit of a trouncing, actually, in the midterm elections there. Joe Biden's 80. So, again, if you're a Democrat, Republican, it doesn't bother me. I just think at 80 years of age, Joe Biden... And, there's, listen, there's 80 and there's 80, but Joe Biden doesn't strike me as being the most dynamic personality on the planet, I'm afraid to say. So, all of that, and then you throw in Putin... You throw in the Chinese leadership. You know, it's a world at the moment that doesn't feel particularly safe or stable. The sooner we can get there, the better. And is that going to happen anytime soon? I hope so. And I think in, you know, on a positive, because I do want to end this conversation on a positive, in Keir Starmer and Rishi Sunak, you might not have the most exciting personalities in the country. But politics is not entertainment. Politics is about making tough decisions for the right reasons. And in Sunak and Starmer, at least, in my opinion, we've finally got grown-ups in charge of our main political parties in the UK again. Frank McKenna, I'm definitely going to leave it on that. Thank you for joining me. Thank you. And if you enjoy that, we've got some great podcasts. Why not just subscribe? It's free.